Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. The challenge of the book of Job is can you remember what you are told in the first verse? That Job was blameless. Terrible things are going to befall this beleaguered man. But he's not to blame. It's not his fault. He didn't do anything to deserve what follows. The challenge of the book of Job is can you hold on to that? Can you remember that? Most people cannot. In the book of Job, there's a scene very early on where the Satan, Hasatan, the accuser, comes into the court of heaven. Jehovah and Hasatan. And God sort of taunts the devil and says, hmm, where you been? Well, I've been out patrolling the earth. Well, have you checked in on Job? There's a blameless man, full of integrity, fears God, does what is right, turns away from evil. And the devil says, yeah, well, does Job do it for nothing? And the accuser does what the accuser does and begins to accuse Job and says, he does it for what he gets out of it. He doesn't worship you for nothing. He worships you because he's got a sweet deal. This is the way the story is told. And so there is a wager. And the Satan is let loose. And poor Job goes through a series of catastrophes. Where he loses his wealth, he loses his health, and he loses his ten children. It's just the worst thing that can befall a human being. Now, Job has three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And when they heard of the tragedy that had befallen their friend, they came and they sat with him for seven days and seven nights in silent sorrow. Would that they had done that and only that. But alas, they then began to speak. And that's when they became... Job's miserable comforters. They felt that it was incumbent upon them to explain to Job why this had happened. An explanation quickly turned into accusation. And they tried to convince Job that surely this was the punishment of God, that he was to blame, that he had done something that caused him to deserve such a terrible tragedy. And so we have a series of debates. First, Eliphaz accuses Job. See, the devil has not disappeared from the story. The Satan has simply now possessed Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far. 
And Eliphaz brings his, his accusation. Job defends himself. Then Zophar accuses and, and uh, or Bildad accuses and Job defends himself. Then Zophar brings his accusation and Job defends himself. And they go through that three times. Three cycles of accusation and defense until everybody's exhausted. That's where we left off, left off last Sunday. And now a new figure enters the story. Job chapter 32, verse 1. Job's three friends refused to reply further to him because he kept insisting on his innocence. Question, is Job innocent? Yes. He's blameless. Job kept insisting on his innocence because he was. He's actually reached the point in his fatigue where he doesn't really even care anymore. But just out of his own integrity, he's not going to admit to that to which he is not guilty. Towards the end of his defense, he generally says things like, but what does it matter? I am innocent, but what does it matter? And now, Job's too exhausted to talk anymore. And the three miserable comforters are the same way, but a new character emerges. Verse 2. Then Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, of the clan of Ram, became angry. He was angry because Job refused to admit that he had sinned and that God was right in punishing him. So, right there we see Elihu's assumption. That Job has sinned, he's not blameless, he's sinned, and that what has happened in this catastrophe of losing wealth, health, and children is God's punishment upon Job. Let me back up and start verse 2 again. Notice, notice how many times the word angry shows up. Elihu is an angry young man. Elihu is not the voice of wisdom. Some people think, oh, okay. You know, we've had Job, and he goes overboard a little bit, and we've had, you know, the three miserable comforters. But now, at last, the voice of reason, no, that is not Elihu. I think of Elihu, Elihu's a young man, I think he's about 23. He's a first-year seminarian. Uh, he, he's got a big, long hipster beard. He likes flannel shirts, craft beer, and reading Calvin's Institutes. That's how I imagine Elihu, and he's angry. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the clan of Ram, a first-year seminarian, became angry. He was angry because Job refused to admit that he had sinned and that God was right in punishing him. He was also angry with Job's three friends, for they made God appear to be wrong by their inability to answer Job's arguments. Elihu had waited for the others to speak to Job because they were older than he, but when he saw that they had no further reply, he spoke out angrily. Elihu is a theologian whose theology is formed in anger. Theology formed in reactive anger will be bad theology. I wrote a book about this. I call it Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Elihu should read it. Somebody get him a copy of it. Elihu's uh, theology is one of retribution. We'll see that. Verse 6. Job chapter 32, verse 6. Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, 
said, I am young and you are old. So I held back from telling you what I think. I thought those who are older should speak for wisdom comes with age. But there is a spirit within people, the breath of the Almighty within them, that makes them intelligent. You know, he's convinced he's very bright. Sometimes the elders are not wise. Sometimes the aged do not, the aged do not understand justice. Now, what motivates Elihu's theology is anger, and what lies at the basis of it is a concept of justice as punishment. That the way the world is to be redeemed is that the bad people get punished. You could describe Elihu's theology as angry retribution. He believes that God is angry most of the time, and that God's work in the world is one of punishment, and that's what he calls justice. I just want to say, though, that people that equate justice with anger are far from the heart of God. People that equate justice with punishment are far from the heart of God. So this is Elihu, and he's convinced that Job is being punished by God. Here's where you have to be careful. It's when you're trying to do theology that you don't project your own issues on God. Elihu is angry and he's retributive. And without even knowing what he's doing, he projects that onto God. He's angry, so he thinks God is angry. His concept of how you set the world right is you go around punishing people. That's retribution. He's retributive, and so he projects that on God. He's convinced that God is that way. Job chapter 34, verse 7. Um, this guy goes on for six chapters like this. We're just hitting some of the arguments. Job 34, verse 7. By the way, not everything that Elihu says is wrong. Not everything he says is wrong. Its application is entirely wrong. Its assumption is entirely wrong, even though he can say things along the way that are accurate. Job 34, verse 7, tell me, has there ever been a man like Job with his thirst for irreverent talk? He chooses evil people as companions. He spends his time with wicked men. He has even said, why waste time trying to please God? Listen to me, you who have understanding. Everyone knows that God doesn't sin. The Almighty can do no wrong. He repays people according to their deeds. He treats people as they deserve. Well, first of all, Elihu is speaking falsehood about Job. I don't know that Elihu is deliberately lying. I don't think he's that kind of man. I think he's just got it all worked out in his head, and he's just convinced that Job is a blasphemer, that Job is irreverent, that Job is a great sinner, that Job likes to hang out with wicked people, even though we're told in the first verse that Job was blameless, a man of complete integrity, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. But he says, no, Job has never been, never been a sinner like him. His thirst for irreverent talk. 
He hangs out with the wicked. And so that's why God is repaying him. That's why he, well, because God treats people as they deserve. That's, that's his argument. That's what he's saying. Part of what is under dispute in the book of Job is, the, is this question. How is God present in the world? Elihu assumes that God orders all events. That God is the agent of cause for everything that happens. In philosophy, we would say that Elihu is a, deter- is a determinist. In theology, we would say he's a Calvinist. Elihu is convinced that everything happens because God causes everything. That's his assumption. That's much of what is under dispute in the book of Job. is How is God present in the world? We believe God is present in the world. But is God present in the world as the, aid, as the agent of causation for everything that happens? Or is perhaps God present in another way? Is perhaps God present within the reality of freedom? Not causing all things to happen, but present to all that happens. In His love, in His compassion, in His mercy. That's the question under dispute. Look at verse 16, 34, 16. Now listen to me if you are wise. Pay attention to what I say. Could God govern if He hated justice? Let me me explain Elihu's theology. It's got three points to it. Point number one. God causes everything. God is in control of everything. Everything that happens, happens only because it falls within the realm of the will of God. That's his first tenet. Second tenet is God is just. That a tenet I agree with. God is just. Therefore, everything that happens ultimately is just. That's his theology. And it's a fairly common theology to this day. That God is in control of everything. God is just. So ultimately whatever happens is somehow just. That's all false. Well, it's not all false. The first assumption is false. I'll I'll say that's an assumption. Maybe you agree with it. Maybe you agree that God causes all things. I do not. I do not. I believe God said, let there be. And when God said, let there be, he opened the door to authentic being at the price of radical freedom so that anything could happen. Just jump all the way to the New Testament for a moment. It's not that God causes all things. It's that God can cause all things to work together for good. God can be involved in all things and can work towards the goodness. God can work towards redemption. God can work toward setting the world right. But it doesn't mean that God is the agent that causes all things to happen. To put it bluntly, God didn't kill Job's kids. And it wasn't his will. It's what happened. Verse 35, Elihu continues, Job speaks out of ignorance. His words lack insight. Job, 
Now here's Elihu, he's just speaking directly to Job. He looks him right in the eye, this these young little 23-year-old seminarian. Looks at Job, who's, by the way, a blameless man, full of integrity, fears God, does what is right, excuse evil. He looks at Job and he says, you deserve the maximum penalty. You deserve, that's another common word in Elihu's theology. Deserve, 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 deserve. People get what they deserve, they get what they deserve. You deserve it. If it happens to you and it's bad, it's because you deserve it. If something bad happens to you, it means that God caused it and God is just. So if something bad happened to you, it's because you deserve it. That's Elihu's theology. And he says, Job, you deserve the maximum penalty. What is the maximum penalty? Yeah, capital punishment. Job, you deserve to be put to death for the wicked way you have talked, for you have added rebellion to your sin. No, Job was blameless, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. For you have added rebellion to your sin. You show no respect, and you speak many angry words against God. Elihu is all about projection. Who's angry? It's Elihu's angry. And he projects his anger on God. He projects it on Job. And now he's saying that Job deserves... Poor Job. Poor Job. He loses his health, his wealth, his children. His friends come to comfort him and end up accusing him. And then some punk kid comes out of nowhere... And says, you know what we should do? We should just execute Job. What is wrong with this guy? Chapter 36, verse 1. Elihu continued speaking. Of course he does. Of course he does. By the way, Job never responds to Elihu. Because you don't feed the trolls. I mean, what are you going to do? And he never says a word to him. Oh, I'll throw this in. Just for those of you that like a little tidbit of biblical scholarship... It is generally believed that the six chapters of Elihu's accusation of Job is a later edition. It comes in a later, but be that as it may, here it is. Elihu continued speaking, of course he does. Let me go on. I will show you the truth. Elihu really believes that he has the whole truth of God. Let me go on, and I will show you the truth. For I have not finished defending God. What happens when people set out to defend God? That's when you get things like inquisitions and burning heretics. Because you've got to defend God. I mean, Calvin presided over the execution of a heretic that was burned in Geneva, Switzerland. And his his defense for it was, I'm defending God. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, uh, let's just burn some heretics because we're defending God. Let me go on. I will show you the truth. For I have not finished defending God. I will present profound arguments for the righteousness of my Creator. I am telling you nothing but the truth, for I am a man of great knowledge. Shut up, you arrogant punk. You arrogant punk. I'm done with Elihu. I'm not going to read any more of his stuff. Elihu is convinced that he alone has the truth. 
He's got, it's, it's incumbent upon him to defend God. And he's got his own inquisition going and he's already gathering up the sticks and he's ready to burn Job at the stake. So where do we find Jesus in the book of Job? Because Jesus tells us after his resurrection as he talks to the Emmaus Road disciples that all of the scriptures are ultimately about him. So, and, and the way a Christian reads the Old Testament is we, we find Jesus. Where is Jesus in Job? Well, he's certainly not in Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job's miserable comforters. He's absolutely not found in Elihu, the arrogant punk. And Jesus is not really even found in the overawing whirlwind speeches that we'll look at next Sunday. We find Jesus in Job, the blameless victim. Let's go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 26, verse 62. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's brought for a late night trial before the Sanhedrin in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. Matthew 26, 62. The high priest stood up and said, have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? Just as Elihu accused Job of blasphemy, so now Caiaphas accuses Jesus of blasphemy. And just as Elihu said that Job deserved the maximum penalty, that Job deserved death, so now the Sanhedrin says that Jesus deserves death. Jesus is the ultimate blameless victim prefigured in the life of Job. Where do we find Jesus in the book of Job? We find Jesus in Job himself. So Jesus, like Job, even more so, is a blameless victim. But Jesus takes the blame. He just takes it. And he takes all of the blame. He takes all of the blame and carries it down into death. Down into Sheol, down into Hades. Jesus takes all the blame. It's all, we all blame. It's all just put on Jesus. He's blamed. And he just takes it. 
And he takes the blame all the way down into hell and leaves it there. Because when he's raised from the dead on the third day, he doesn't come back blaming people. He comes back saying, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Jesus took all the blame, took it to hell where it belongs, and left it there. And now Jesus calls us to once and for all abandon the blame game. Why? Because it's the devil's game. Why does Elihu, Eliphaz, and Bildad, and Elihu, why do, why do they blame Job? Well, for several reasons, not the least of which is they are possessed by the Satan. They're full of Satan, and they don't know it. When Elihu says, I'm filled with the knowledge of God, no one knows the, the things of God better than I do. He believes it, but he's completely blind and ignorant. All right, speaking of which. Let's go to an incident a little earlier in the ministry of Jesus. It's found in John chapter 9, verse 1. John 9, verse 1. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. So Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples. They're walking down the street and there is a blind beggar. The disciples see it. They see this tragedy that has befallen this man. And they think... A man must have got what he or somebody got what they deserved. And so they asked this question. Who's to blame? Who sinned? It's got to be because of sin, right? I mean, if this happened, it must be some kind of punishment. And so they ask, uh, who can we blame, Jesus? We see a tragedy. This is a tragic, this is a tragic situation here, Jesus. So who can we blame? We've, we've beheld a tragedy who can we blame? And Jesus said, that's, that's not the question. It's not who can we blame. The question is how can we help? When we behold tragedy, we have to put it, we have to, we have to frame it. We've got to frame it. We have to put it in a framing question. If we behold a tragedy and our framing question is who can we blame, then we end up doing the devil's work. And so a devastating earthquake hits Haiti. And some theologian says, hmm, maybe they made a pact with the devil in the 18th century. And in the 21st century, a bunch of people got killed by an earthquake. We'll blame them. <laughs> That's a Elihu theology. That's, well, it's not a Elihu theology. It's satanic theology. The question when we behold tragedy is not who can we blame. The question is how can we help? What must we do that we might work the words of God? We believe. All I see here, guys, this is Jesus talking to the disciples. All I see here is an opportunity for us to do the work of God. And the work of God is not to accuse, not to blame. The work of God is to help and heal. 
And so Jesus heals the man born blind. He does it in a strange way. He <laughs> spits on the ground. Who can we blame? <laughs> just, he just spits. <laughs> Who can we blame, Jesus? <laughs> and he makes mud of the spittle. And he rubs it on the guy's eyes. And says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he did, and he came back seeing You'd think that would be the happy ending to the story. It's not. Because then the Pharisees, beholding what Jesus did, they're so committed to the blame game that they go, oh, wait a minute, but it's a Sabbath. It's a Sabbath. And Jesus is working because he's healing. He's, he's doing the work of a doctor. He's working on the Sabbath. Let's blame Jesus. And what does Jesus say to that? Verse 39 Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. When we assign blame we make too strong a claim on our ability to see. This is Elihu. Elihu watches the situation. He says, no one sees as clearly as I do. Job's all messed up. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, I know they're aged, supposed to be wise, but they don't get it. I'm the only one who sees here what's really going on. I see clearly that Job is a great sinner and that God is just and that God is in control and that God is clearly punishing Job. I'm the one that sees. Elihu thought that he had 20-20 vision when he was completely blind. When we see tragedy, it's, if nothing else, it's best to admit the whole thing's veiled in a dark mystery and I don't really know what's going on. That's an act of humility to speak like that. Though I think much of the motive for blaming the victim is fear. Because we want to be assured that if we're good, nothing bad will happen to us. See, we have this theology. God's in control of everything. And God does not do injustice. So if I'm good, good things will happen to me. And if something bad happens to that person, it must mean, mean that they're bad. Because if I allow this thought into my theology, bad things can happen to good people, then all bets are off. And suddenly we're gripped by fear, and we say, oh, well, anything could happen to me then. And because we can't tolerate that, we hold on to this false illusion that God controls everything, and because God is just, only bad things happen to bad people. And if something bad happens to a person, it must mean they deserved it. We're not called to that theology. We're not called to that kind of fear-based reaction. Instead of reacting to fear, we're called to faith and to trust God. And we trust God that no matter what happens, God is with us. And eventually, someday, we'll fall down and weep and understand everything. All things. That's trust. That's walking by faith. That's saying... 
even though I know, I acknowledge that bad things happen to good people, I still believe that God is present in the world and God is working toward a redemptive end. And I believe that someday, someday, it'll all be reclaimed and redeemed and reconciled and set right. I believe God. And in the meantime, I'll just hang on to Him. Our task is not to assign blame. Our, our task is not to go out there and find sin. You know, these guys are investigating Job, as the Sanhedrin was. If you think it's your task to go find sin in people's lives, you'll find it whether it's there or not. It wasn't present in Job's life, but Elihu found it. It wasn't present in Jesus' life, but Caiaphas found it. It is not our task to investigate sin and assign blame. It is our task to look for need and share mercy. To look where people are suffering and bring the mercy of God. Thomas Merton said it this way. The saint judges no man's sin because he does not know sin. He knows the mercy of God. He knows that his own mission on earth is to bring that mercy to all men. Amen. Amen. We are followers, not of Elihu, the accuser. We are followers of Jesus, the healer. Amen. Stand with me. And now you are invited to the table of Jesus Christ, where he will not accuse you. Where he offers his own body and blood for the life of the world. He offers his own life that we might have life. He knows that no one here can claim to be blameless. But he invites us to come to his table. Where he says all things are forgiven. And I give my life to you. Amen. Join with me in confessing our sin before God, receiving forgiveness, and then together let us, let us come to the table of the Lord. Pray with me. Most merciful.